When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. One of the greatest testimonials in Scripture to that life within the womb, the full life of the child who is present there, early, early days for Jesus. Six months plus for John along the way, but already the the witness is there. They know each other. Both of the mothers are rejoicing in the life that is there. 37 years ago, in my last year of seminary, I had opportunity to go to Israel. I wasn't going to go. I didn't think I could afford the time or afford the cost, and I got talked into it, and I've, of course, never regretted going, both for being there just for its own sake, but also for that test that is a reasonable one in any of our lives, the testing out of how our faith accords with what we know of real life. That is, it's easy to believe that certain things happened once upon a time long, long ago in a land far, far away. Miracles happen. The ancient saints did wondrous works. When you read about a 20th century or 21st century saint who is still doing things in the Lord, that sometimes challenges you a little bit. Well, is it really happening? Is it just people's imagination? I've spent a lot of time over the years in ordained ministry dealing with that struggle in the church of separation between the life of faith and the, what people call the real world. I've actually stood up in Anglican days on the floor of a synod and talked about the heart of our faith and had somebody say, yes, 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 we all believe those things and it's good to talk about faith, but we're talking about the real world. To be there in the waters of Galilee and to say, I don't just picture Jesus walking upon waters somewhere, but on these waters. Here was the place that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Here was the Lord taken up into glory as his disciples watched. Our faith is an incarnational faith. It is meant to take hold in our daily lives. It's meant to be about our daily lives. St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, I know we didn't read from it today, but he begins the chapter by talking about the faith that he's received and is passing on. And on the one hand, there are the particular doctrines, the, the facts of the matter of the Lord's suffering and death and his resurrection. Then he goes on to the witnesses to the risen Christ. But then, having gone through hundreds of others, he says, and last of all, as to one born out of due time, and I never miss grabbing that one today because when we're remembering the children in the womb, the term that he uses at that point, ektromati in the Greek, is the literal term for one who is stillborn. Or as a colleague of mine said years ago, uh, the fruit of an abortion, that is, the term is 
is a compound. It's it's ek from or, or out of and to trosko is a verb which is to wound. That's out of wounding, but it's wounding unto death. So it's one who has been born into this world but has no life in this world. And St. Paul himself says, in effect, I was in this world, I was accomplishing all kinds of things, I thought I had life, and I met Jesus. And I know I had no life in me. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He has raised me into life, and he's fruitful in me. But the key in all of that is that Paul considers it essential to the witness that he has, not just to recount the particular doctrines of the faith, but also to say, how does this touch my life? What difference does it make to me? And it's when it catches us like that that conversion happens. It's then that we've got a testimony to give to others. Well, for me, the whole story of Our Lady of Guadalupe is bound up with that very thing. A few days ago, some of us marked a memorial for St. Juan Diego and his part in that story of being drawn aside, what he, what he saw on his way to Mass. I, I believe he heard some singing first and the light, but I can't be sure of that one. But he was drawn aside to this lady who identified herself as the mother of the true God, who who gave him a task. But the striking thing about what he saw was that it wasn't the likeness of a European statue of Our Lady in her standard robes and light-skinned and what have you. The woman that he encountered was very much one of his own people, one who had the dress, who who had the appearance, who had the skin coloring, who spoke his language. In that area, there had been Franciscans for decades now, beginning to spread the gospel. And there were converts. Well, Juan and his wife were among them, but they were slow going. And for so many, this was a a foreign word, a foreign religion. But this one who spoke to Juan and what she opened up was something that spoke into the heart of that people. I think back to the day of Pentecost, when the apostles standing there suddenly broke into these other tongues, proclaiming the glory of God. But they weren't just any tongues. They were the languages of those who were gathered, their own native tongues. I don't know anyone who's here tonight who knows that firsthand. We have some people around, some who are francophones. We have someone who's who's Turkish background, and that's the primary language. To be somewhere and suddenly to hear someone speaking perfectly in your own tongue moves you in a way that you can hardly imagine. And when it's the word of God being spoken, it's not just that these people know. And in fact, if you ever had an experience like that, you know full well that those who are speaking don't really know your language. It's the spirit at work. God knows who you are. God cares who you are. We know something of the story, perhaps, of what follows on all of that. St. Juan was very much moved himself, but she sent him with his task to go to the bishop and tell him that there was to be a chapel built to her 
on that hill, Chapayac Hill, out up above where we identify Mexico City now. And of course, he got to the bishop and had his fervent request, and the bishop looked a little wide-eyed at him and sent him off. I have in mind that he came twice before the bishop said, well, you, you have to give me more than your word. Give me some proof. But maybe it was just once. I do know that when he did get his proof and come back, the bishop's secretary was set to put him off at some great length, this wild man out of the hills with his colorful stories. But he went back, and I won't go through more details, except the the lady giving him the sign, taking him further up the hill, wintertime there as well, to gather flowers, flowers that weren't in season, but more than that, they weren't flowers that were native to the region. When he did bring them before the bishop, turned out that they were flowers that were native to the bishop's own region of Spain from which he'd come. He gathered them in his tilpa, uh, his, his, that's right, tilpa. Tilma, tilpa. Okay, I was calling it a tilma before and then my notes seemed to say tilpa and I was correcting myself, so. <laughs> that's why I don't look down. Uh, <laughs> But the rough peasant's robe, something that usually wears out, like natural fiber clothing does in the course of time, should have worn out hundreds of years ago, yet still is on display. The Holy Mother arranged things for him. And when he arrived and he let the flowers spill out, there was the amazement at what the flowers were, but then the greater astonishment at what was emblazoned upon the tilma. On the front of your bulletins, again, the vision that was there of the lady, which, of course, as we read from the 11th chapter into the 12th of the the revelation of our Lord to St. John, we have that vision. It's evoked there the lady who is clothed with the radiance of the sun, and you can see the rays that go out, who is standing upon upon the moon. The moon is at her feet, which is consistent with the revelation, but in the Aztec religion is also that crescent moon is a symbol of, of the god of the darkness, of the night, a snake god, a serpent god. And in fact, there's some texturing in the moon of like a snake skin, but under her feet. There's actually some interesting reflection on the derivation of the name where it comes. There's a sense that it might be from words in the language of the day for the serpent and depicting it as under her feet. But buoyed up by the angel. There's more to the whole image that one can go into, and some have, talking about what's depicted of constellations on her robe and such. But through it all, at the heart of it all, is that word that here is one who is one of his own, who speaks not just in that audible language, but in every way, speaks to the things that he knows, says very clearly, this gospel I bring, this child I bear, is your Savior as well. I come as your mother too. And in the next decades that followed, there were millions who were converted in that place. 
who came in to the Gospel, who heard the Word of Christ and responded. The Revelation gives us that sign. we got kind of a, a wider context of some of the things that go on, and I think that they're all important for us on this night. A part of it, that vision of the, heaven, the, the temple in heaven opened, and the Ark of the Covenant visible in heaven. The church speaks of Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. And in that vision, no sooner is the scene opened up than we hear that the sign that he's looking upon now is the sign of the woman. The Ark in the wilderness, the Ark of the Old Covenant, was that sacred container in which Hebrews tells us there was the tablets of the Ten Commandments. There was a a container of the bread, the manna, that was put aside to be preserved. That there was Aaron's rod that budded. And in Hebrews, there's that sense that these are all things that point to Christ, that are fulfilled in him. The Ark of the New Covenant holds within the Holy Child who fulfills all of the Law and the Prophets. All that is the Ark is about, but more than that, the covering over the top of the ark, sometimes called the mercy seat, that atonement covering, is the one that has the two carved cherubim upon it. The word in the Greek for that is hilasterion. It's used in the Old Testament translation in Greek. It's used in Hebrews to refer back to that covering over the ark. It comes up one other time in the New Testament. It's in Romans 3. 25, where we hear about Christ, who is our, most translations will say, our propitiation or our expiatory sacrifice. But there's another word for that. Hilasmos is the normal word for the sacrifice, but hilasterion is the one that's used of the mercy seat. That covering, that was the place in the wilderness where in the Holy of Holies, the cloud of God's presence came down to meet, to speak to Moses, manifest God's presence in their midst. It was there that they poured out the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Some of the blood for the people, some of it upon the mercy seat. The understanding that the presence of God, the cloud of God's presence comes down and meets with the people's sacrifice, and there the atonement is made. Christ is the mercy seat. The Holy Spirit overshadows the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Apiskiazo in the Greek, the very word that is used when the Holy Spirit, as the angel promised, overshadowed Mary, that she might conceive and bear the Son who is Emmanuel, the Savior of the world. We again think about his glory coming down but we recognize once more that the way that he comes to be with us is not as the great warrior Lord who's dropped down out of heaven, but the one who enters into the smallness of our lives the same as any other human being through that tiniest of portals of conception within his mother. He grows within her, comes forth to be laid in the manger in the vulnerability of that place. We'll, of course, spend our time with that in the next couple of weeks. He continues to do that with us. He continues to come to us 
in the glorious sacrament in that same vulnerable way. So small, so frail that we can take him in our hands. We can take him within our own flesh. He comes down to enter into our lives in every way, to enter into the the depth of our suffering. And in the greatest miracle of the whole gospel, he doesn't simply come down and touch us with a, a distant hand to heal our wounds. He enters into our suffering. He weeps with us. He dies for us and with us. He enters into the deepest of depths that he might raise us up into fullness of life in him. Especially important in those times where in some of our lives we enter the the space that seems most God-forsaken, where we lose one who is, is so precious and small and we wonder why. Dear friends, young couple who went through, uh, after their firstborn, a number of miscarriages, and then suddenly the young husband died very suddenly. And his wife, who has marked, you know, a year after having stood with her husband grieving their first miscarriage, that now she stands without him in her grief. The Lord enters into our suffering to set us free, not by waving it away, but carrying us through it, through death and into life. I come back again and again to Christ crucified, never more vulnerable than on the cross where all things are stripped away of this world. We look for answers so often when there aren't answers to be given, and if we could be given them, we wouldn't know what to do with them because we don't understand the fullness of the things of God. But there is always a response in the midst of our suffering, and it is Christ crucified. I have said to many of you before that in my younger days, I grew up in a good Christian home, and the cross was really important, but it was always an empty cross because we worship the risen Lord. And I still believe that, of course, I wasn't used to the crucifix, but as I grew in my own experience of suffering, but particularly being with people in their suffering, I realized that the one thing I had to bring them back to was not simply a risen Lord, because that seems almost like it skirts the pain, but Christ crucified, who willingly stretches out his arms upon the cross. Yes, they dragged his arms out. Yes, they drove the nails through, but he chose to embrace that cross, to give himself up, to enter into the depths, that he might raise us up. There is no depth so deep that we can go where he has not already entered in. Crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. That's the... That's the traditional translation. It's worth holding on to. To raise us up in himself. To raise up the little ones that we entrust into his hands. He gives us his mother. To be our mother too. In Guadalupe, but in so many encounters with the Blessed Mother. 
to hold us, especially our little ones, as she held so long ago her own son, newborn, but then lifeless as he was taken down from the cross. Then the day came when he gathered her into his arms, that where he was, she may be also. She was assumed as she was gathered up into heaven. May she sing into our hearts, our minds and souls, the song of her hope, which is his hope, the promise of everlasting life with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Amen and Amen.